Thank you, J.D. It's great to have uh, some shared DNA with you guys, not just as believers in Christ. Uh, we certainly have that, the same family identity through him, but um, your uh, pastor, uh, my son, was with us at our church for a long time, uh, many years. I've been in ministry for 30 years, and he's 35, 6, I don't know, he's old. And, uh, and then when uh, we planted Redemption Hill and sent uh, J.D. and his family, we also sent many of you, at least some of you are still here, um, the Millers and see Michael and see, well, several of you are still part of this, um, the moneymakers. Um, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad to be part of a church that's committed to Christ's mission in this world? I mean, think about it. To accomplish this monumental mission, God could have chosen to use any means that he wanted. I mean, he could have chosen to use angels. They certainly would have been a, a blameless witness of the gospel, of his son having been created directly by him. God certainly could have positioned in creation the stars in our galaxy in such a way that at different seasons, they would spell out the gospel in every language that would ever be known upon this planet. He could have chosen any number of dramatic and actually very reliable ways to broadcast his message, but he didn't. Instead, God chose the most unlikely of means to accomplish his mission. He chose to use ordinary people like you and me, people who have been transformed by his grace, people who have been filled with his spirit, and people who are obedient to his word. I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to um, Acts 17. We're going to be in the 17th chapter of Acts this morning. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is actually on his second missionary journey, he and his team, which was comprised of Timothy and, and Silas and Luke, have thus far on this journey planted churches in the Macedonian cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. However, organized opposition against the gospel has driven Paul out of that region. And as we pick up the narrative in verses 16 through 34, we find Paul alone in Athens. It used to be, in the United States of America anyway, that unbelievers had a, a general understanding and, and even a, a somewhat of a, a respect for the Bible. But over the past 60 years or so, the Bible has become increasingly marginalized in our society. And God has been systematically excluded from the public arena of ideas. And as a result of this, there is a generation of believers today, of unbelievers rather, who don't really have a clue about the Bible. They have some assumptions that everything there is contradictory and untrue, but they don't really have a clue about what's in the Bible, and they know nothing about God. A few weeks ago, our youngest son, Marcus, was serving in a local outreach community that we do 
in some apartment complexes uh, with immigrants, and he came home and told me that in the group that he was working with, there were three new young people who had never heard of the Bible before, and they said that they didn't even know that there was such a thing as a God. Can you believe that? We're going to come across more and more people who are like that. People who need to be reconciled to a God about whom they know absolutely nothing. So how do we make God known in that kind of context? As we work our way through these verses, we will discover this morning four things that are involved in making the unknown God known to people who don't know him. And rather than just taking the time to read this narrative, we're going to walk our way through it. So I want you to have your Bible open and, or your device or whatever you have and to follow along with me. The first thing we see in verses 16 is that making God known involves having a burden for the lost, a burden for the lost. So as Paul is waiting for his missionary team to join him in Athens, he was looking around, and he was struck by what he saw. Athens was a spectacular city, and in many ways, it still is. How many of you have ever been to Athens? Okay, a couple of you have. When tourists go to Athens, they want to see the sculptures. They want to see the architecture that's there. Did you know that the ancient buildings that we see in Athens today were actually over 450 years old when Paul arrived there? To us, as we see these things, they're incredible works of art. However, when Paul saw them, Luke says in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is his missionary team, in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what provoked Paul in his spirit was that Athens was filled with idols. In fact, one ancient writer said that in Athens it was easier to find a god than it was a man. The word provoked that Luke uses here describes being stirred up and in turmoil. So Paul's spirit here is deeply distressed. But why? It was because of what the idolatry in Athens was doing. See, Paul understood that idolatry robs God of the glory that is due him by seducing people away from God to something else. Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 42, 8, speaking, God speaking through him. He said, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You see, the idolatry that Paul saw in Athens exposed the desperate spiritual condition of the people there. They were lost, and it caused Paul to become burdened for these people. Let me ask you a question. When you see the depraved hearts of people in our fallen world being expressed in sinfully destructive ways, what is your response? Unfortunately, many of us become enraged at them because of their sinful lifestyle. 
Does your heart become enraged with the unbelievers because of what they're doing? Or does your heart become burdened for them because of their desperate need? Listen, we need to understand something, that the lost, those without Christ, are not the enemy. They are the mission field. They're the mission field. You see, because their hearts are darkened and their minds are blind, they are seeking security and meaning and fulfillment in everything except Jesus Christ. And because of that, they're ensnared by all kinds of idols that they are substituting for God. We need to see them with the same kind of eyes that Jesus had. As followers of Christ, we actually are the ones who have the good news that they need. But we'll never be moved to reach the lost until we look beyond their sinful behavior and we begin to see the needs in their soul. They need Jesus. You see, lost people do what they do because they're lost. So what's the answer? I tell you what many are saying today, even in churches, they're saying that the answer is political. They're saying the answer is financial or social or even moral. No. Those are not the solutions that the world needs. The answer is spiritual. It's the gospel. And we have the answer that the world needs. You see, we have been called to, to represent the king of kings kings as his ambassadors, and we are to testify of his life-giving message as his witnesses. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you what? Become fishers of men, but we will never be moved to reach the lost until we're burdened for them. So how do you become burdened for the lost? To become burdened for the lost, we need to see them the way that Jesus does. If you remember when Jesus began his public ministry, he looked beyond people's physical circumstances and he saw their true spiritual need. Quoting from Isaiah 61, Jesus said in Luke 4:18, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? To proclaim good news to whom? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to whom? To the captives. And the recovering of sight to whom? To the blind." And to set at liberty whom? Those who are oppressed. You see, making God known involves having a burden for the lost because of seeing them how Jesus sees them. Jesus saw those who were in this world without him as spiritually bankrupt and bound and blind and broken. Well, as we come to verses 17 through 21, we see a second thing that's involved in making God known. Making God known involves using your opportunities for evangelism. You see, Paul was provoked in his spirit, but what did his burden for the lost move him to do? Well, it drove him to go to them and to use every opportunity he had to share the gospel. In verses 17 through 21, we see that Paul was involved in three different types of evangelism. What were they? Well, first, there was the opportunity for strategic evangelism. Whenever Paul went to a, a new city, the very first thing he did was to make a beeline to the synagogue. Why? Because his strategy was to go to the Jew first. Look at the first part of verse 17. So Paul's provoked because of the idolatry that he saw, and verse 17 says, so 
he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person. Stop right there for a moment. You see, Paul capitalized on his cultural background as a Jew, and he used that as a platform for ministry. You see, being a Jew, and specifically being a Jew who was trained under Gamaliel, Paul was able to enter any Jewish synagogue and reason with the Jews there from the Scriptures. They already believed in God, see, and they already respected his word. So Paul would show up at the local synagogue, and he would then show them from their own Scriptures how that God promised that a Messiah was to first come and suffer and die before he would come to reign. And then, after proving that from the Scriptures, all Paul had to do was to connect the dots and show how Jesus was the Messiah whom God had sent. I think all of us have something in our background that gives us access to strategic opportunities for evangelism. Maybe it's your profession. Maybe it's some past experience. Maybe it's a hobby that you have. It's whatever it is, it's got to be something that gives you a common point of contact with others. Use that platform to intentionally engage those who need Christ. We need to be intentional. We need to consider ways in which we can capitalize on those things. Maybe, maybe you want to invite, you might consider inviting uh, coworkers or neighbors over for dinner, people that you already have relationship with. And then at that dinner, you might share the gospel with them just through your own testimony. But the point is, look for points of contact where you have opportunities for strategic evangelism. But notice there's not only opportunity for strategic evangelism, there was the opportunity for spontaneous evangelism. So on Saturday, Paul would go to the synagogue and he would share the gospel with the Jews who were there. And then throughout the week, Paul would go to the marketplace and he would present the gospel to whoever happened to be there. Look at, again at verse 17. The first part says, so he reasoned in the synagogue. And then look at the last part. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now the marketplace or the agora was more than just where, uh, a place where people went to do some shopping. This was actually the place to be in Athens. This was the place where people gathered to do business or to learn the latest news or to discuss politics or to socialize or to be entertained or just hang out. When you think about our culture today, we really don't have an equivalent to that where we are. But there are lots of places today where people gather to interact. There's coffee shops, there's sporting events, there's parks. The point is, Paul took the gospel to where people were. He looked for opportunities to engage people with the gospel. You know, I don't know any true believer who would deny the importance of evangelism. But you really wouldn't know that by how most Christians approach evangelism. Most Christians think that if they just live their life for Jesus, people will see that and they'll want to be saved. Maybe you've heard it put this way. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use what? Words. 
Boy, that sounds really good. Unfortunately, it's just not biblical. The gospel is something we are to give. Yes, we must live in light of the gospel. However, we must also speak the truth of the gospel. Listen, you and I have opportunities every day to share the gospel with people. But I wonder, do we really take advantage of these opportunities? Spontaneously engaging in gospel conversations with people should be a normal part of our everyday lives. This includes opportunities in the break room at work or opportunities standing in line at Walmart or opportunities talking with your neighbor over the fence or opportunities engaging the panhandlers down on Mass Street or coaching Little League sports. Like Paul, you and I need to be intentional and we need to take the gospel to people. It's interesting, Paul didn't show up at the marketplace, set up a tent, and put a sign that says, revival here. Paul went to the people. So there's opportunities for strategic and spontaneous evangelism. Then notice in verses 18 through 21, there was the opportunity for solicited evangelism. So while Paul was evangelizing in the marketplace, verse 18 says, notice this, that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now in the marketplace, Paul interacted with men from two principal schools of philosophy. Luke says that Paul conversed with them. He talked with them. He engaged them. Who were these people that Paul engaged with the gospel? Well, the Epicurean philosophers, they believed that the highest good in life was pleasure. Now, see if this rings a bell in the county that you guys live in. So they lived as immorally as they wanted because they believed that the gods were sort of detached from life. They believed that everything that happened, happened by chance, and that this life was really all that there was. And so their motto could be defined as, if it feels good, do it. Sound familiar? The Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, believed that God was sort of this blind, impersonal force that directed everything. So God was kind of a, you know, a force. For the Stoic, the highest good in life was to just grin and bear it. So they looked at at the struggles and the suffering of life as just something that they had to endure. These are the kinds of people that Paul engaged with the gospel in the marketplace. These were These were the intellectuals. These were the philosophers. These were people committed to their various school of philosophy. And notice that as Paul shared the gospel with them, some of them actually weren't very impressed at all. The end of verse 18 says, and some said, what does this babbler have to say? They referred to Paul as a babbler, which literally means seed picker. That word describes the sparrows who would fly around in the marketplace and go to the gutter and pick whatever was discarded. Maybe you've seen this as you go through a drive-thru at some fast food place. The sparrows would pick up the discarded french fries and hamburger buns that are in the gutter. You see, they viewed Paul as picking up the discarded ideas of others and just sort of cutting and pasting those ideas together. So some weren't very impressed. However, notice that some were actually intrigued by what Paul was sharing. 
the end of verse 18 says, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Foreign divinities, meaning of gods that we've never heard about. And then Luke adds this little comment. It's because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It's fascinating to me that when Paul engaged with the philosophers, that what he was sharing with them was the gospel. Jesus, his death, life, death, burial, resurrection. He wasn't debating philosophy. Paul was simply sharing the gospel. You see, Paul believed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that it was enough. And because Paul had been preaching Jesus and his resurrection, some were intrigued. Why were they intrigued? Well, they had never heard about a God becoming a man. They had never heard how that he then was crucified and that through his death, he actually paid the spiritual sin debt that his enemies had incurred before a holy God. They never heard how he, he then rose from the grave to provide eternal life for all who believed. This was all new to them, and they were intrigued. Well, in Athens, you couldn't just show up and start espousing some new philosophy or religion without first having a proper hearing and getting approval. So verse 19 says, look what it says. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Now, the Areopagus was the hill of Ares called Mars Hill. This is, was in the, the middle of Athens, just near, probably only 40, 50 yards away from the Parthenon. This is where the Supreme Court of Athens convened. So when any new philosophy or religion was promoted, the court there at the Areopagus would have to review it through an official hearing. And since Paul was teaching about a God that they had never heard about, he was taken before these people. And get this, they asked him to share what he had been presenting in the marketplace. According to verse 21, the people of Athens were always looking for something new. It says in verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's interesting that even though these people had all of these gods, the city's full of idols, and even though they had these philosophies that they clung to, these human philosophies, it's fascinating, their hearts were still empty. So they were always eager to hear something new. Maybe this is going to be it. So they were eager, eager to hear this new thing Paul was promoting. Look at verses 19 and 20. They asked Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And you talk about a great opportunity. I mean, Paul was taken before the philosophers and the leaders and the judges and the authorities and the most powerful people in Athens asked him to share the gospel. Only God can create that kind of opportunity. Several years ago, I was invited to uh, by a, a university sociology professor to speak to his class, and the topic that he wanted me to talk on was how do Bible-believing Christians understand salvation? 
Basically, all I did was to communicate the gospel. I got to share the gospel with about 100 students and then take their questions afterwards. That was a solicited evangelistic opportunity. Not long ago, I was at a graduation reception and was introduced to the head of the astronomy department of a major university. I said to him in that, in that meeting, man, I envy your job. He said, what? Why? Because you get to spend every day focusing on the glory of God. He said, what do you, what do you mean? He was perplexed by that. So I shared how that Psalm 19, 1 and 2, says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And I told him then how that glory is more completely displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. And he asked me how. Solicited opportunity. And so I was able to share with him the gospel. Listen, as people learn that you are a Christian, they very likely may ask, what about you makes you so different? Use this opportunity to share the gospel. Doesn't Peter say that that we are to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us of a, 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 for a reason for the hope that's in us, we need to be prepared for solicited opportunity. So making God known involves having a burden for the lost. It involves using your opportunities for evangelism. And third, as we come to verses 22 through 31, we see that making God known involves proclaiming his truth to others. Proclaiming his truth to others. So as Paul begins to share what he believed, I think it's significant to notice what he did not do. He didn't engage in a dialogue with them like he did with the Jews in the synagogue. He didn't converse with them like he did with the philosophers in the marketplace. Instead, he declared the truth that they needed to know. He told them about the one true living God. And notice that in Paul's presentation of God, there's three things people need to know. First, people need to know that God is knowable. They need to know that God is knowable. You know, Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3 as knowing God. He said that's what eternal life is. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life. What is it, Jesus? That they... Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is knowing God. And Paul understood this was the great need of the people in Athens. They knew a lot of stuff. The problem was they just didn't know God. So how do people then come to know God? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.21, since the world did not know God through wisdom, that is, through their own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There, Paul equates knowing God with salvation, and he contrasts the wisdom of the world with the gospel message that we proclaim. I think one of the most difficult aspects of of witnessing to people is how to actually begin that conversation, right? I mean, most of us understand the gospel. At least, hopefully, you understand the gospel. You know the gospel is not just that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You understand the elements of the gospel, deals with who Jesus is, deals with what God demands, deals with 
who sinners are and how God has provided for sinners to be reconciled to God. But we really struggle with how to actually cross that bridge into sharing the gospel. Well, as Paul began at the end of verse 22, he started with something that he noticed about them. He said he noticed they had an interest in spiritual things. Listen to what he said. Verses 22, well, toward the end of 22 and verse 23. It says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. See, in Athens, there were all kinds of altars with to made for all kinds of gods. But one particular altar was dedicated to the unknown God. This was intended to cover all of their bases just in case they left a god out. So Paul says, you people appear to be interested in spiritual things, but you yourselves admit that you don't know God. So I'm gonna tell you about it. Look at the end of verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Look this way just for a moment. Do you know why you do not need to be intimidated about sharing the gospel to anyone, regardless of how many letters they have after their name? It is because you know something the unbeliever doesn't. You know God. And all you have to do is to tell them what you know. You see, these people in Athens may have been intellectuals, but they didn't know God. We come across people all the time, don't we, who claim to be spiritual. They say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. But they're completely ignorant about who God is. Look for opportunities to tell them. This is what Paul did. In verse 24, through 29, he introduces them to God. Now, I want you to notice quickly, there's five things Paul declares to them about God. First, notice he says that God is powerful. God is powerful. He begins by introducing God as the all-powerful creator who made everything. Look at verse 24. He introduces God as the God who made the world and everything in it. Stop right there for a moment. So rather than attack their false beliefs, Paul simply stated the truth that God is the one true eternal God who made everything. Announcing God as creator implies several things. First, it implies that God existed prior to creation. It means that he is distinct from his creation. In other words, he's apart from creation. And it indicates that he is infinitely powerful, having made everything, including matter, space, time, and he did it from nothing. So opposed to the many man-made gods who were worshipped in Athens, Paul, right off the bat, proclaimed that God is the one true, all-powerful God who made everything. Secondly, notice, Paul says that God is supreme. As creator... God then has the right, as the owner and ruler of everything he created, to rule over it. So Paul says that this God who created 
notice in verse 24, is Lord of heaven and earth. The word Lord speaks of God's supreme authority as master of heaven and earth. He's supreme over his creation in the sense that God has no equal and that he is subject to no one. He alone is Lord of heaven and earth. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 say that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, for he founded it. But notice that God is not only all-powerful and supreme, thirdly, Paul demonstrates that God is transcendent, transcendent. The word transcendent means that God is greater than and God is independent from his creation. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he can't be contained in shrines or represented by objects that are made by men. Paul declares in verses 24 and 25 that God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, all mankind, life and breath and everything. So Paul declares that this God who made everything cannot be diminished to some man-made form. He does not live in temples or shrines that men make. But also notice that while God is beyond and above and outside his created universe, he is fully present in every aspect of his universe. Paul says that God provides everything that anyone needs in life. He not only gives to all mankind life and breath, but Paul says he gives everything. Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So Paul introduces God as powerful, as, as supreme, as transcendent. And then notice in verse 26, he presents God as sovereign. See, God is not just some impersonal force who got the ball rolling and then stepped aside to see what might happen. Paul said in verse 26 that God sovereignly rules over his creation, determining what happens. Verse 26, it says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, Paul is saying that God made every people group in the world from one man, and then out of Adam, God made Eve, and then from them came the rest of humanity. What this means, the implications today are powerful, is that there is only one race, and that race is made by God and made in his image. But just as God made every nation from one man, Paul also says that he determined when each people group should live and where they should live. In other words, God determined everyone's place in history as well as everyone's place on the globe. God is sovereign over history and over geography. He doesn't leave anything to chance or to fate. He leaves it up to his own determined purposes and plans. So even though God is transcendent, he's intimately involved in his creation as the sovereign God, Lord over creation. Finally, in verses 27 through 29, Paul shows that God is near 
So why has God determined when and where people live on the earth? Verse 27, Paul says, it's so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Yes, God is outside time and space. Yes, he's above and beyond the created universe. However, at the same time, Paul says God is also near. He's actually, Paul says, not far from each one of us. See, God has made himself visible to every person who has ever lived through what he created. I quoted Psalm 19, 1 and 2 earlier that says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation is God's own witness of himself. And this witness is accessible and has been accessible to all people in all places. Romans 1, 19 and 20, Paul says that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then Paul says, so that they, all people on the world who have witnessed those things, are without excuse. See, God has revealed himself in creation so that people will look to him and will seek him. So what Paul is saying is that this God that you don't know, he's knowable. He's knowable. Then in verses, verse 28, Paul quotes two Greek poets, Epimenides and Eratus. These are poets who had written about a God who created man. Look at verse 28. You'll notice that it's in quote, for, in quotes, for in him we live and move and have our being, end quote, as even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring, end quote. So Paul quotes these Greeks not as a source of truth. Paul quotes them to illustrate the point that even their own cultural icons knew that God is not made in our image, but we are made in his. That's Paul's point. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul's point is that even your own poets came to the right conclusion about God based on what they saw in creation. They believe that God is both powerful and personal. So why in the world are you perverting this all-powerful personal God into something that's formed out of the wicked imaginations of men? You see, even though these people had been given general revelation about God and creation, they exchanged that truth for a lie. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So in making the unknown God known, what do people need to know? First, they need to know that God is knowable. Second, they need to know that they are responsible. People need to know that they are responsible. Now having just declared who God is, Paul then declares what God requires. First notice, Paul declares there is the responsibility that they have to repent. There is the responsibility to repent. You see, this powerful and personal God who rules 
over creation has the right to command his creatures. That's the logical conclusion. And so Paul says in verse 30, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, Paul is saying that from the flood that destroyed the world in Noah's day until his visit to Athens, God has been patient. By the way, that had been about 2,500 years. And Paul says all that time God has been patient to overlook the ignorance and the idolatry of men. However, now God commands people everywhere to repent. He's saying it's time for you to turn from your sin and idolatry to the one true living God. By the way, that's what repentance is. It is turning away from everything else and turning to God. So there's the responsibility to repent. But why? It's because Paul says there's the certainty of judgment. Secondly, there's the certainty of judgment. Verse 31, Paul commands, or says that God commands all people to repent. Why? Verse 31, because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul, following his argument, has just told them that this creating, sustaining, ruling, supreme, transcendent God who is near is also judge. He's judge. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that one day when Jesus returns, he will return in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those, get this, who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So God has a fixed day on which he will judge the world. But notice how God will judge the world. Paul said it will be in righteousness. In other words, God's judgment will be right. It will be just. And notice by whom God will judge the world. It will be by the one he has appointed, the one whom he raised from the dead. It will be by Jesus Christ. You see, the judge will be the son of God who came as a man and died for sinners. He is the one that God raised from the dead as proof of who he is. Listen, Jesus came to save those who repent. And he came to judge those who don't. What this means is that Jesus will either be your savior or he will be your judge. This was the truth they needed to know. They needed to know that God is knowable and that man is responsible to turn to him because one day he will judge the sinners who don't. We need to make God known. It involves having a burden for the lost. It involves using your opportunities for evangelism. And it involves proclaiming truth to others. And finally, the last two verses, we see that making God known involves leaving the results in God's hands. So how did the people respond to what Paul said? Well, there are basically two responses. Some rejected Christ and some received him. Listen, as you share the gospel, you can be absolutely confident that most people will definitely reject Christ. Just the heart of man. Man's depraved and blind and dead in sin. 
Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You see, these people could tolerate what Paul said about God up to this point. But when he started telling them about Jesus coming as a man to die and then rising from the dead, they began mocking him. But there was another type of rejectors. Some were more polite in the rejection. Look at the end of verse 32. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And while these people didn't mock, they still rejected Christ by politely putting off, trusting in him. This is kind of like what you might do at a store where you have a sales clerk hounding you and you're trying to shop and, and you pick up something and now they see what you like and they're not going to let it go. You say, well, let me just think about it and uh, I'll uh, come back if I'm going to buy it. You have no intention of buying it. You just are putting them off without saying, get out of my face. I'm, you know, that's what this group did. So how do we respond when people reject the gospel? We need to simply trust God for the results. By the way, you can't save anybody. I don't know if that's news to you or not, but you have no power to save anyone. Uh, salvation is of the Lord. We need to simply trust God for the results and move on. Look at verse 33. It just, real simple, it says, so Paul went out from their midst. In other words, he just quietly left. He didn't leave out of a feeling, a feeling of being humiliated or defeated or discouraged. He left because he was leaving the results in God's hands. You and I aren't responsible for how people react to the gospel. We are responsible, however, for simply declaring the truth and then leaving it to God. But notice that while some rejected Christ, some actually received him. Look at verse 34. It says, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how many believed, but he says that some did. And he even identifies two notable people who trusted in Christ that day, including one of the actual members of the court, Dionysius. And he mentions a prominent woman in Athens that everyone would have known named Damaris. Think about these people who believe. Their entire life, they had been embroiled in idol worship. That's all they knew. They had been steeped in worldly philosophy. However, after being exposed to the truth, they turned from their sin and joined Paul in following Jesus. Isn't that amazing? How do you explain that? God opened their heart. Lives were eternally transformed that day. Doesn't this encourage you to make, want to make God known? You see, the church of Jesus Christ, folks, is to be a gospel-spreading, sinner-rescuing, soul-winning, disciple-making people. That's what we're to be. The gospel is powerful. It transcends cultural and social and racial and national boundaries. The gospel has the power to pierce through the spiritual darkness of the sinner's heart and provide the light of salvation to people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we need to make God known. What does it involve? Having a burden for the lost. Maybe some of you have grown callous and you're grateful for your salvation, but you think that maybe evangelism is something that the professional people should do. No. Something that you are given to do. 
How do you develop a burden for the lost? Start viewing people the way Jesus views them. Stop being, getting your nose bent out of shape when they start doing really bad things. It's what they're supposed to do. They're lost. What do you want? You want a bunch of really moral lost people? That just makes the gospel harder to penetrate. What you do is you see their need for Jesus Christ. Second, use your opportunities for evangelism. You've all got them. Different contexts. Use those opportunities to share Christ. Third, proclaim the truth to others. It's important that you live in light of the gospel, but it's equally important that you proclaim the gospel, share the gospel, engage in gospel conversations. And then finally, leave the results to God. Don't take it personal when someone rejects. They're not rejecting you. It may feel like they're rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. You live in a community that needs Jesus. I mean, I don't know how to be any more bold than saying Lawrence is lost. And it's reflecting in everything from philosophy to politics to everything about this community. Who's got what this community needs? You do. You do. How do you make God known in a world that doesn't know God? Acts 17 tells us. Father, we pray that you would so move and work as we seek to be the church here in Lawrence to make you known. We pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that we would be a kind of people who would be willing to cross what we may perceive as social or cultural, even moral boundaries with the truth of the gospel, that you would increase our witness and effectiveness. You're worth it. You're worth it. Any rejection that we experience, you're worth it. You've given your all to redeem us. Help us to remain silent no longer, especially in this day in which we live. It seems that the whole world is clamoring for answers and is scared to death about death. May we hold Jesus up high. And for those who are here who don't know you, oh God, may by your Spirit you draw them to Jesus Christ. They see him as the only solution for their soul, that they repent and embrace him as Lord and Savior today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.